0: L'Audi de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr.
1: Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr. Hello and welcome to this, the latest edition of the TES International Podcast. My name is Ed Dorrell, I'm head of content here at TES, and today I'm delighted to be joined by John Gwyn Jones, who's Chief Executive of the Federation of British International Schools in Asia. Is that right,
0: John? That's right, Ed, and it's a pleasure to sit here with you and talk about the international education scene in, in Asia. Fabulous. Um, John, let's start
1: at the start. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be doing the role you're doing now?
0: Well, if you can believe it, back in nineteen eighty six, I had my first interview and appointment to Hong Kong. Okay, uh, and I worked with the British Forces School, so it was an Army school. when in those days Hong Kong was still a British colony. And uh, I worked there for five years, great experience. I was fortunate, my local authority in Wales released me for three years and seconded me. So I had no risks really, but never went back. (laughs) And of course, I could see that uh, Hong Kong was going to be handed back to China. So I moved on to Malaysia, where I had my first headship, became a principal of St. Christopher's International School in Penang where I worked for 24 years, broke a lot of records, actually. And that was a primary school? That was an international primary school, and um, that became my home, Um, and I retired there back in uh, 2014, which lasted about two weeks, (laughs) and then I moved to Laos, of all countries, uh, which is a very underdeveloped country, and supported... The growth of development at Panyatip, the British International School in Laos. And when I went there, we had two campuses. And in five years, I left there with five campuses. And then uh, recently, I was successful in being appointed the CEO of Phobysia, the Federation of British International Schools. Which
1: leads me to the um, very obvious question. What does Phobysia do?
0: For BISIA, then, services. is, uh, sem- at the moment, 70 British-type international schools throughout Asia. So we have uh, schools in 17 different countries in the region. Um, our strengths, I would say, is to provide student activities that enriches what they do in their schools, and professional development, along with networking and support. So that's the core of our business, really.
1: So I should say at this point, I'm excited to be able to tell listeners that we um, at TES will be uh, hosting the first, our first ever International School Awards at your conference in November in Bangkok. That
0: is, yeah, that is excellent news. And we've had dialogue over this over the last couple of months with yourselves. And we're delighted to you know, tag this on to our conference and welcome schools uh, from around the world you know to to come to your awards evening and hopefully participate alongside our conference as well. I can't
1: wait that'll be in November but anyway John tell me what are the challenges for international schools in your region? Um, The obvious one would be recruitment and retention of
0: teachers but what are the others? Well you know that the recent outbreak of the corona virus is a good example I suppose because you know that's come from China and it's affected the whole region but you know apart from uh, issues like that that crop up from time to time. um, Retention recruitment you have mentioned, competition you know um, the growth of schools in the region over the last 10 years has meant that schools that perhaps historically have had waiting lists are now struggling to fill their places so the growth of schools has resulted with that kind of challenge. So, yes, I mean, this is something that we at Tez have covered.
1: There are way, way more international schools uh, now than there once were. Um, could you tell me a bit, little bit about how, um, how that has developed and um, how that competition now impacts? Are we at saturation point for some of these schools?
0: In some places, you possibly are. You know, it's interesting. When I, when I, I was one of the founding heads of Habisya, and at that time, we had 10 schools, all not-for-profit, mm-hmm. all set up by parents, all income was generated back into the school. Now, you know, all the schools that are set up now are either proprietor schools or for-profit schools or are a business. Uh, so the dynamics have changed. The other um, factor that we've seen growing in the region is the UK brand schools, independent schools. You know, they've moved into Asia in a big way. You know, the first brand to move in was Harrow, uh, followed closely by Dulwich. And now uh, there's an abundance of them wanting to expand internationally, not just Mm -hmm. in Asia, Mm -hmm. but in the Middle East and everywhere else as well. So that's, that's a huge growth. And then you have these... Um, corporate, um, you know, investment companies such as Nord Anglia um, seeing the potential of setting up schools, and good schools, I have to say, you know. um, Absolutely. Very impressive. So, huge changes in in recent years. It's hard though, isn't it? It's harder than perhaps people
1: would realise, because it's very easy to sit here in the UK and say, you know, look at all these big public schools opening franchises left, right and centre. It's much harder than it looks,
0: right? You know, obviously you have to do your homework, you have to do your feasibility studies, you you know, and and you don't rush into it. And it's a huge investment. And the return of investment of setting up a school, um, you know, it's, it's a minimum of 10 to 20 years, you know, before you get your returns. So it's a long-term journey. Um, but, you know, there are some regions, China is a good example, you know, china is a huge market but then there are risks you know because countries like china you know they move the goalposts and they (laughs) change the rules and all of a sudden you know you have to comply then to a different market you think you're opening an english language school and suddenly it has to be bilingual for example that's right and you know the good thing is a lot of international schools are making adjustments to that Uh, so they are going away from your traditional international school that provides a medium of English, uh, British curriculum, British examinations, um, to offering a a branch of their brand in in a bilingual model. Mm -hmm. So they are teaching through the medium of the local language, Chinese, Lao, Thai, um, and teaching English as a second language. And that's appealing to the local students because... Again, it gives them a pathway to British universities as well. Absolutely. One of the things
1: that interests me is how um, international schools have changed um, and, uh, in, a, in the last few decades. One of the things I think I've identified is that um, historically international schools were for essentially expat communities or at least international minded communities. Um, and, and now um, more and more it seems that they're educating local families. Would you say that's true? Yes. And does that change the way the schools kind of see
0: themselves? Well, yes, you have to adjust to that, you know, um, because the expatriate market sometimes shrinks because, you know, multinational companies that invest in these countries, they localise their management teams and to cut their costs. So then schools have to adjust accordingly mm-hmm. then. And Malaysia is a great example because, you know, when I worked in Malaysia initially, there were no Malaysians allowed to attend international schools after, okay. after the age of six, which was compulsory school age in their system. Uh, they then changed that to being like 20%. And then now there's no cap. So, you know, most Malaysian international schools are, are top heavy in terms of the number of Malaysian students they have, which are excellent students, Um so the local market now is wanting a great exposure in terms of an English medium, British type, international education. So, you know, it's a good market um, that, that schools are, are tapping into. So are these more than British curriculum schools uh, or, or are they still British schools? You know, if you ask me what is a British international school, then this podcast will be about five hours. <laughs> 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 you know it there's Certainly. such a there's a, such a debate over that you know um and even to become members of Fabiicia, there is a criteria which often can be interpreted differently uh but there are certain uh expectations curriculum is one um and then you know the traditional u k system of having houses british teachers um values. Uh, they vary enormously, you know. Um, but there's an element of Britishness amongst all them. So, give you know a great example in our federation, we have the Canadian school in uh, Bangalore, you know, Okay. and um, they predominantly do deliver British curriculum, the UK IGCSEs, and so on. So they qualify on that basis. So even though they're technically Canadian, called Canadian, yes, <laughs> yes, yes.
1: You mentioned British teachers, and um, one of the things that comes up um, time and again when I speak to people from the international school world um, it is recruiting and then retaining um, high quality teachers. Um, I mentioned it earlier.
0: Is it still a struggle or is it getting easier it's a challenge for sure, and it's very competitive you know um, yeah, I remember the days where you would advertise for teachers around about February. You know, people now advertising as early as October prior to that, you know, mm-hmm. to get ahead of the game, as it were. Um, so the challenge of finding suitable teachers to come out and work in overseas is becoming greater. Um, and now, you know, sc- schools are looking at potential NQTs coming straight out of university. There was a school in Kuala Lumpur that would hire, like... Um, graduates who didn't know what they wanted to do to come and be teaching assistants, hoping that they would then eventually say, oh, I like this, I want to mm-hmm. be a teacher, and then go on and do the IPGC or something. So they we're all looking at solutions to what is a growing challenge. And, um, you know, we we are trying to attract people because, you know, I, I have to say, having been overseas 34 years, mm-hmm. it's been a great career. Yeah. Um, and, you know, these schools, international schools on the whole, the standards are high, the resources, the facilities, the professional development that they offer, and packages, you know, in terms of salaries and benefits. It's it's a great opportunity for young people, you know, so plugging a bit of an advert in no, here no, as
1: well. No, no, fair enough. Um, in terms of professional development, it does seem that that is one of the areas that schools are really focusing
0: on. Yes. You know, every time you interview a teacher who wants to go overseas, the first thing they ask is, what's your professional development program? You know, am I going to grow? Uh, Am I going to develop? So at Fabisia, you know, one of the strengths of our federation is we offer great professional development program, ranging from your MPQ programs Mm -hmm. um, to uh, safeguarding, which is uh, quite a, a hot topic at the moment and well-being and And then, of course, we have these, what we call JAWS, and they are job like workshops. So we bring practitioners who focus on a particular area together to share good practice. And Mm -hmm. it's very economic to do that. So um, we have a great professional development program that uh, is working very, very effectively.
1: You mentioned safeguarding. Um, It strikes me that this is a kind of amazingly live issue for schools in your space. Um, The sector seems to have woken up a bit to it. Um, But it
0: is a big challenge, right? Yes and no. You know, schools now understand that um, child protection, uh, having a safeguarding lead, um, compliance to inspections, they have to meet the expectations in Mm -hmm. terms of safeguarding. Mm -hmm. For sure. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of training that are being offered in terms of online and through our professional development on safeguarding, on child protection. The recent one now is well-being and yeah. men- mental health. And not just for students, but for your staff as well. Um, so these are the new trends that are setting in. You know, in, in my day, you'd get a slap across the head. And say, oh, get on with it. Stop <laughs> complaining. and. Those days are over. <laughs> yes, they they, they they
1: certainly are. Um, but the uh, the challenge in terms of background checks and stuff like that
0: with teachers. Yes, you know, and we, we did have it? a system where we could tap into the UK before, and that is no longer available uh, in terms of police checks, background checks. What happened? Um, well, you know, they said that you you'd have to be working in the UK, you know, and people from overseas couldn't access that list. Um, we can contribute to it, but not access it. So that gives us a greater challenge. So we then say to teachers, right, you've got to provide us with a certification that you uh, have got uh, security clearance. You know, I've always maintained, it's, it's interesting, Ed, you know, even when you do the background checks, what it basically means is you've never been caught, right? You know, right. Um, you know goodness knows what you've been up to. Um, but it still is one deterrent and it does give you comfort of knowing uh, the background of the staff that you're employing. Um, but in Asia, say for example, if you're working in Asia and countries, say for example like Laos, uh, you go to the local police and say, can you give me a certificate as a security clearance and you give them an envelope with a bit of money in it and then you've got it. You know, So sometimes the credibility of where you may be as to the Quality of the background check comes into question. Mm -hmm. It's it's a challenge to the sector, for sure, to keep going. Yes. And, and, you know, schools are very focused on this, not just through their recruitment, uh, safeguarding recruitment, but, you know, in terms of monitoring their staff. um, So, you know, no school wants to have a situation that brings a lot of attention to it in that respect. No for sure, absolutely absolutely.
1: Um, Can you uh, to find a more upbeat way to finish this lovely conversation um, do you think the sector will continue
0: to grow or has it kind of reached its natural limit? Oh absolutely, absolutely you know give you an example Um, in, in the next four months I have about eight international schools that are Applying to be members of Fabicia, mm-hmm. um which reflects that growth. Um, we have the independent sector in UK looking more at the region in countries like, particularly, China, but Vietnam as well, as to potential setups, you know, um, changing models of schools to bilingual. Uh, so the market is still huge, you know, and uh, we haven't had the issues of Brexit out there. And, uh, no, for sure. And then uh, ASEAN, uh, in terms of the group of countries, the 10 countries, is quite an attractive proposition. And, you know, this week I was at the House of Commons talking to the Prime Minister's trade envoys uh, who service these schools. And uh, they saw education as one of the markets that UK should be tapping into in our region. I think they're a-
1: absolutely right. Yes, and what a great way to finish. Um, John, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It's been a great chat. I mentioned at the top of the show <laughs> that we're, uh, we're launching these awards with Verbisier. Um There'll be more details on our website. All you need to do is Google Tez International School Awards and find all the details. Uh, thank you for listening. L'Audi de vos rêves se trouve
0: déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr.
1: Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr.